Tune in to independent music culture and the conversations which surround it. Subscribe to Quack Audio Stories to listen to audio cover stories, on-the-ground reporting and exclusive artist interviews. Search now for Quack Magazine wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Super Thursday in Crack Supporters Week. I am Chell Ravens. I'm here with Andrew Jervis and Ali Gilani from Bandcamp. Hello. Hello. All right. So Bandcamp, it's probably one of the most used words among <laughs> music fans of the past year, I'd say. It's been a big year for Bandcamp. I probably don't need to introduce what it is, to be honest. This has the potential, I think, to be a real sort of backslapping occasion because Bandcamp have positioned themselves as kind of the white knights of uh, independent music under, no wait, I don't mean a white knight, do I? A knight in shining armour. A white knight would be bad. Uh, Of the music industry. Hugely celebrated by artists and fans and music journalists as the future of independent music. And with, I think, surprisingly few naysayers so far. In the last year, especially, Bandcamp really cemented its role at the centre of a global underground music community with the introduction of Bandcamp Fridays, uh, which I would bet everyone watching now has had the pleasure of using. Uh, it's the day when when Bandcamp's usual 15% fee is waived so that all profit goes to the artists instead, or in fact, as was often the case, to charities and various good causes. So that's the hype. We already know and love Bandcamp as an alternative to Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, all the rest. But to be honest, it doesn't take that much, I think, to offer artists a better deal than any of those companies, any of those tech giants. So I really want to drill down a little bit deeper and find out a bit about what Bandcamp's vision really is. How as well does their success impact on an existing underground music community, artists and labels from outside the US as well? And what is their responsibility to us, I guess, as fans, as artists, now that they have become a kind of monolith (laughs) of independent music? Uh, So welcome again, Andrew and Ali. It's great to see you both there in your little boxes. Thanks. Appreciate it. Let's start with some basics. Would you like to introduce yourselves and just tell me what you both do at Bandcamp? Andrew, do you want to start? Sure. I'm the director of artists and labels, uh, and I also host the Bandcamp Weekly. And uh, yeah, my role is the European artist and label rep. So I work with Andrew on the team that Andrew heads up. And I occasionally host the Bandcamp Weekly when Andrew is otherwise engaged. And I also, aside from my work at Bandcamp, I run an independent record label called First Word Records, which I've been doing forever. It seems 17, 18 years, something like that. I interviewed Ethan Diamond, the founder of Bandcamp last year. He was very nice. Thought he was very unlike how I expected him to be, actually. He talked genuinely about loving music, I think. He like used to play saxophone and loves jazz. And, and I noticed that actually talking of like getting Ethan's email or you know, getting a reply from him, I noticed that if you look on the artist's advice on Bandcamp about if you want to appear on Bandcamp Daily, there are three emails that you can email addresses that you can send your music to, depending on what genre it is. And it says if you have like jazz or indie rock or 
hip hop, it's diamond at bandcamp.com. <laughs> so do, is that still the case that Ethan actually chooses even things that go on Bandcamp Daily? No, as a coincidence, we have a, a writer on the staff. Who's no. If Diamond married Ethan, that would be amazing. <laughs> Diamond, Diamond. I did think, I was like, surely he doesn't have time for this. But the thing is, I believed it because he seemed very genuinely into music in the way that, like, I don't know, Daniel Eck isn't. Um, <laughs> all right. He definitely isn't. Honestly, if you read any of the copy on Bandcamp that's not editorial, most often times Ethan will have written it or it's at least passed over his desk. You know, he has a definite style, way of writing that's just great and, you know, conveys all of our enthusiasm for music. So, you know, he's very hands-on, but not in a kind of like, oh my God, I've got really annoying boss. It's like you said, it's like <laughs> the boss that maybe you didn't expect. The thing is, Bandcamp is is based in San Francisco and in, in some ways it is a tech company. Ethan used to have a tech startup before, but it's obviously not a typical tech company. Could you go into that a little bit more? Like, what is Bandcamp in relation to the million other music tech startups of the past, what, like two decades? And why has Bandcamp managed to be successful where so many other music tech startups have failed? I think that we definitely distance ourselves um, from the ways in which other companies in this space have operated. We've, you know, we've never had an office with a foosball table. We've never had people to walk our dogs at lunchtime or any of that kind of stuff. In fact, in, for the first couple of years of Bandcamp existence, you know, it was a few people working out of a library because it was free Wi-Fi. You know, and yeah, Ethan may have had that background, but that background may have informed how not to do things rather than how to do things. And so Bandcamp's always been slow isn't the word, intentional uh, in the way that we grow. Not in a huge hurry. We don't need to burn through money. We don't need to prove things to a bunch of investors to show how fast we're growing. You know, we only <coughs> succeed if artists and labels are doing well. As you mentioned, we take somewhere between 10 and 15% in rev share. So our investors, if you like, are the artists and labels who are using Bandcamp. So if they're doing well, we're doing well. And that informs pretty much everything that we do. Which means that we don't brush into everything. We don't. We don't have flashy offices. Uh, we don't do a lot of the things that companies who are trying to prove, "Hey, we're being successful." Do Ali, what would I miss? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key things is that since 2012, we've been a profitable company. We're not trying to like pay back massive, you know, some VC investors' uh, latest whim of what they want to kind of make their millions in. You know, we. As Andrew says, we serve the artists. That's how we do well, is if the artists are doing way better than we're doing. And I think, yeah, there's, there is a genuine love for music in the company. And I often say, you know, you're not going to find Bandcamp like sponsoring the lanyards at every music festival that you go to and all of that sort of stuff. The focus is on making the product really, really good and making it work for artists. And genuinely, whenever we're discussing, you know, a new feature to develop or a new thing to do, the question is, how does it benefit artists? If it doesn't, chuck it out. We're not going to do it. If it does, well, how can we best do that? What's the most that we can do for artists? And that's how Bandcamp Fridays came about. It was like, we have a situation here where artists are threatened. Their livelihoods have been threatened, have been fundamentally wiped out in some instances. So what can we do? That's where that whole initiative came from. I guess one other thing real quick too is that Bandcamp's always made it a priority to be in the background. Fans don't subscribe to Bandcamp. We're providing the ability for artists and labels to 
communicate and sell directly to their fans and for fans to show their love to artists. We're trying to not be in the middle of that as much as possible. That's not our role. We're facilitators and we like music. So, you know, you don't need to subscribe to Bandcamp to be part of this whole thing. That's um, that's another thing that's kind of at the forefront of our thinking. I mean, one thing that had come up a little bit in some of my conversations about Bandcamp recently with, with people who are maybe had a more sort of passing familiarity with that, I guess, was this question of like Bandcamp as a product of San Francisco and of Silicon Valley. And I've kind of encountered this suspicion that at some point, you know, Bandcamp will sooner or later become ensnared by the logic of Silicon Valley capital, essentially, that it will have to be bought up by private equity or floated on the stock market or whatever. And I think that for artists who are coming to rely on Bandcamp as their primary source of income, things like that are quite worrying because they don't necessarily feel like they have control. I mean, what what are the chances of Bandcamp selling out realistically? Well, as it happens, we have some break. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's not of any interest to us. We do what we do. If there was another company that came along and, you know, wanted to do something with us and it made sense for the mission of Bandcamp, then maybe we would consider talking to whoever that person is. But that's not on our list of things to do. We have no interest in getting bought up by by somebody when you know we're not looking to ipo or any of that kind of stuff every year bank gets together we do this thing called the gathering it sounds a bit cult-like but <laughs> what do you burn at the gathering <laughs> just small children um <laughs> because we've always been a very distributed company to have an opportunity for us all to be in one space once a year it's been kind of cool and, and so you know ethan does a kind of rundown on, on where things are at and i think you know probably a couple of years ago when things were looking fairly grim in the US with the regime that we were looking under. There's a lot of negative vibes, but you know, Ethan reminded everybody of the deluge of emails we get daily from folks saying, Hey, you know, you help pay for my mortgage or you pay for the groceries today or whatever it is. It's heartwarming stuff and it's a that it underlines why we're doing what we're doing. So if we can have fun doing this, helping people survive and helping people get their amazing art out further into it, what else would we want to do? That's kind of complete. It's too much fun this way. Why spoil it? Yeah, like following on from that, I mean, you mentioned the regime that America has now finished living under, switched to a different kind of regime. And it's been obvious in the past year that Bandcamp has not been afraid of taking not merely a kind of good causes stance, but, you know, I think you'd have to accept an actively political stance because there have been fundraisers for political groups, you know, like the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, Transgender Law Centre, Voting Rights Project, the NAACP, uh, NAACP Legal Defence Fund. These aren't totally anti-establishment, but they are political groups, I think. Now, like it's not it's obviously not unheard of for a company to take a stance and to donate money to causes and so on. But I do wonder what this says about the moment that we're at in history and how underground music, independent music, sees itself fitting into all of that. Because number one, if Bandcamp is going to be such a dominant element within this independent music ecosystem, it obviously needs to think about how it's public stance on certain issues reflects or not the artists who use who use Bandcamp. So one thing that I saw when I was reading around about Ethan was that he he said that the Bandcamp ethos comes from the words that were going to begin Prince's uh, autobiography, which was music is healing, which is very nice. The thing is that it immediately reminded me of that other three-word company motto, 
that didn't work out so well, which is Google's don't be evil. I just wanted to start on like this sense of like, whether Bandcamp has a sort of code of ethics. Like, do you see yourselves as in some way an ethical company, putting aside questions of ethical consumption under capitalism or whatever, but is that, where does that fit with how Bandcamp thinks about the future? Yeah, I think uh, I'll actually, when you were going through that, it made me think of a, another interview that Ethan did last year. I can't remember who with. And someone asked the question saying, you know, you've done these fundraisers for the ACLU and the Transgender Law Centre and NAACP Legal Defence Fund, etc. You know, will Bandcamp, or how, how do they put it? It was basically saying like, you've done all these things that are progressive causes. You know, what do you have to say about that? I think that was, <laughs> yes, we have. That's the answer. Like, you know, and I think where it comes sure. from is another part of the kind of company ethos, which is that we're an artist-first company. And if you're an artist-first company, that means all artists, regardless of race, gender, sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, it really does come from that sort of driving point within that, that, you know, if we are to say that we want to be for all these artists, we need to stand up and, and actually make that a reality, you know? And yeah, we have done those campaigns in the past. So yeah, I think there is definitely... Um, an ethos at the heart of it. And I think certainly I can speak for myself and you know some of my other colleagues that that's really important to us. It's important to feel that we work for a company that values things other than profit. Not that we don't want to make money as a company, because of course we do. And that means that artists and labels make money too, which is the point of why we exist. But um, I think it's really very ingrained with, within us and within the culture of the company that we should think beyond just the bottom line and, uh, you know, growth and all of those other things that businesses are driven by. Mm. And, and Charles, you said, you know, we, we got into this part where we're like more of a force. It's not like that wasn't written down on a piece of paper and anyone's like, need to be very big. It just, you know, what's happened is, has happened and here we are and we're thankful for that. And so now we have a bit of a platform and to not do anything to me is equally as political as doing something. Not doing something means it's, hey, it's okay that this shit goes on. And, that's just not what any of us would, would want to see happen if we have the ability to take some money, the money that we would have otherwise paid ourselves or take some of the influence that we may have grown via our socials or whatever it is. Why not put that to good use? On that note, then, I mean, that is that is a bold enough positioning, I think, in, in comparison to, you know, the, the vast majority of sort of certainly like San Francisco based companies, I expect. I had a lot of questions pitched to me before. And one of the things that came up a little bit was the fact that in several countries, uh, you probably wouldn't be able to use Bandcamp because PayPal doesn't work there. For example, in Palestine, in Pakistan, in, in China, I guess, although I imagine there are ways around that, but I'm not entirely sure. And several others. And of course, PayPal has a history of, for example, shutting down payments to WikiLeaks and shutting down the accounts of sex workers who are using PayPal and so on. And, you know, some artists and fans I've spoken to have said that it is a problem for them on some level that Bandcamp pays its artists via PayPal. So I guess it's like if you're going to position yourself as taking a stand on some things, what are the next steps to that? Like, would you consider using a different online payment system, for example? I mean, I think, you know, it's something we probably think about a lot, but since it was the payment process that the company has kind of built around, it's difficult project not an, a quick easy project and you know yeah maybe at some point it'll it'll change there are workarounds 
I can't speak for the Chinese government and or, or anyone else that makes using PayPal difficult in their territory. We can only do as much as we can. We, we do have as well, like for our subscriptions on Bandcamp, we use Stripe for that instead of PayPal. So that, right. that's one area where there's a different payment method. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. But I do think it, it gets into this question of Bandcamp becoming, you know, <laughs> sort of on purpose, but also perhaps, you know, slightly beyond its control. It, it is a, a global website. It is a global thing. I buy records from all around the world through Bandcamp. And it must be quite difficult to realise that you have to serve this community of people from who are operating at totally different levels, levels of access. And also, you know, for example, the fact that the fundraisers go to causes in the US is kind of interesting, right? Like a lot of artists who are selling records on Bandcamp aren't even in the US. There isn't necessarily a question to this. I'm just trying to think it's obviously going to be difficult for you to adapt to serving a global music community. Is it something that you think about in the office and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, to your point that you buy records from music, from artists from all around the world, it's succeeding to some degree. Could we be doing it better? Yeah, we think about that all the time. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, I mean, obviously I'm over here in Europe and, you know, I have we have a colleague, Will, who does my job in uh, Australia, you know, and we are trying to always kind of reach out into the artistic communities wherever we can and, and find out what we can be doing more, how we can be doing it better and how we can best serve those different places. And yeah, you know, I mean, like Andrew said, you know, some things are very difficult fixes and you, you know, you can try and fix something for one set of people, but actually it breaks a bunch of stuff for a a whole other larger group of people. So there's a constant push and pull, but yeah, well, you know, if there's a way we can improve that's practical and workable, then yeah, we're going to try and do it. But you know, it's not always that simple, obviously. In terms of other kind of quite major projects that you've kicked off recently, you're going to be doing vinyl pressing. I'm not really a vinyl buyer anymore. I have to say I've I've kind of admitted feet on it, but I've heard it remains quite popular. So I mean, why did you want to do this? Was it something that artists were asking for? Like, there are already record shops, people, there are already pressing plants and distributors, and people can already sell vinyl through Bandcamp. And in fact, merchandise, physical merchandise is, is it 50% of Bandcamp sales now? Yeah, yep. approximately. Yeah. Yeah. Big. Including my t-shirt, which I haven't mentioned. Nice. My thin and <laughs> Shanique Marie t-shirt, shout out. Why did you want to do vinyl when... You know, I know people who run labels and press vinyl and, well, as you well know, it's an annoying job. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, really, we, we wanted to take away three pain points. Some artists don't have the money up front. So the way that you run a vinyl campaign on Bandcamp, your fans pay for the vinyl up front. So you don't have to have the money. You don't have to deal with all the, the stuff that you mentioned, manufacturing. You don't have to know what all the terms mean. You don't have to worry yourself about getting masters moved around and blah, blah, blah. We'll take care of it all. At the end of the process, we also take care of your fulfillment. So you don't have to go to the post office with 300 packages to mail out ever because we'll do that for you. The reason we did it is because, as you mentioned, over half of the sales on the site, a little over half are physical, predominantly that's vinyl. But if we looked at how many artists were actually selling vinyl, it was a much smaller percentage, like less than 10% of the releases on the site have vinyl. So from a business point of view, it makes clear sense. Let's enable more people to make vinyl. Yeah, so it, and we've actually been, it's been piloted for the last year now and it's now fully yeah. available and, you know, a lot of accounts are enabled. What, what are the countries that that's actually available in? All countries, yeah. It's All available. countries? Yeah, it's available everywhere. It's just and not... where's the pressing plant then? The 
place we're using at the moment is in Europe, um, but we fulfill from a centre in the UK and a centre in the US. The first really big campaign we did funded just over a year ago, which was from the band Wolfpack, and it was 6,000 records that were pressed based off of fan pledges. Big order. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we were trying to fulfill that just as the pandemic started and lockdown started. And that was interesting, but we got through it and it worked. Um, so, you know, that was kind of a bit of a baptism of fire. But yeah, you know, I think it's um, it's something a lot of people want to do, but they either don't have the confidence to do it. It's a huge outlay. If you're pressing even a run of 300 white labels, that's still four figures easily for you to do that. You know, and I know from my experience of working with pressing plants... If you're some newbie turning up, you don't get the platinum service. You don't get emails answered to sometimes. You don't know when your records are going to arrive. And, and it's really hard to kind of get answers out of, out of some of these companies. Uh, not all, you know, there's some really good brokers out there that do that job very well, but obviously they then take a cut. So, you know, we've got a team of vinyl reps who've got decades of experience of manufacturing. They know all the technical terms. They know how to, they know things that are likely to go wrong and can anticipate them and make sure they don't happen. Yeah, there's a few different ways that you could use it as an artist. But yeah, so far, so good. You know, I mean, I think there's still like, there's still barriers to entry. You know, you're still going to need to get two or 300 people to pledge to buy your record, which is not nothing. You know, that's a significant ask of a fan base, you know, if you're, if you're an emerging artist. But if it opens up, it up to a few more people, then great. It's interesting that the way merch sales have gone. I mean, you know, we, I think last year, was it 2 million records we sold last year, Andrew, two million yeah. vinyl records through, yeah. through the site and half a million cassettes we sold on Bandcamp last year. And I find that so interesting because I'm not sure necessarily they're all getting played, but... Oh, the vinyl isn't getting played either. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite possibly. <laughs> but, but what I think it is, though, I think it speaks to the fact that for a lot of artists, for a lot of fans, sorry, they want the satisfaction of going, I love this band and I want to have a thing that proves that I love this band, whether that's the t-shirt that you're wearing or, you know, a cassette or a record or whatever it might be. And, you know, I mean, I've had that with my own label. Like when we used to do the indie label markets, you know, down at Spitalfields and people would come and buy records for us. And they were like, I'm getting a record player for Christmas. This is going to be the first record I play on it. And it's sort of starting them on that journey. And I think that's that's really great, you know, and it's kind of... In terms of what you're saying about, yeah, there are other record shops and all that, of course. And I think if you get into that culture, you go and find it in other places too. We wouldn't expect that everyone would only buy their vinyl from, from us. You know, there's a whole world of amazing stores out there that people can buy stuff from too. Quick question. What is the coolest bit of merch that you've seen on Bandcamp so far? I say cool. What I mean is weird. There was a label in Canada, a tape label called Tiger Blood Tapes, I believe they're called. And they released, they put an album out on a Russian burner cell phone. So you got sent the phone in a jiffy bag <laughs> and you plugged your headphones in and you could listen to it. That was kind of fun. I mean, <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually just appalled from just an ecological <laughs> perspective. It's, it's disgusting. I have one more sort of theme, which is basically about what artists can and should be doing on Bandcamp. All right, so I've made my dark ambient... ASMR banjo album and I have uploaded it to Bandcamp. How do I become stunningly successful and popular and famous on Bandcamp and sell lots of copies of that record? What should I be doing? We would never tell anybody what to price their music at. You should price your music as you see fit. If your five track album is worth $25 in your mind, go ahead, do it. it that's completely up to you. 
if we look at the data in the background and look at what sells best, if you have a 10-track album and you price it somewhere in that 7 to $10 range or pounds, whatever it is, and use or pay more, you're going to wind up with more people paying more than you thought. Mm. If you have a 10-track album and you're charging 15 pounds for it, don't expect that many people will go, oh, well, no, I'll pay more for that. It just doesn't happen as much. Over 50% of the time, people will pay more if you price in that sweet spot. And of that 50%, a really big chunk are paying twice what you asked for. You know, when we first enabled All Pay More, we saw people paying $100 for something, uh, occasionally $1,000 or something. And we're like, oh my God, they put the point in the wrong place. But no, it went more often than, thankfully, you know, 99% of the time, we do follow up on really big ones. Um, People just said, look, I I love this band. I haven't had a chance to see them in a while. Um, I really just want to show my gratitude. And, you know, it happens. Someone will pay thousand bucks for a track or a hundred dollars for an album. And- I, I do remember reading that uh, Damon Kukowski, one of your big cheerleaders, he pointed out that, uh, so he's the drummer in Galaxy 500. And I believe that Galaxy 500 put the back catalogue on Bandcamp with a set price. And he put all of his Damon and Naomi releases, his new band, as pay what you want. And he makes more from Damon and Naomi than he does from Galaxy 500, which I think is interesting. And it speaks to what you're saying, that people... In the in a certain sweet spot, you're like, ah, uh, yeah, I can afford five pounds, but I could actually, I could actually pay ten pounds. I really like this. But if it was actually ten pounds, it just might not even make it into your cart, you know? <laughs> yeah, like a weird mental thing. And to be clear, there's three things you could do. You can do name your price. So actually, the album is nothing. You know, you can set it to zero. And so for people who can't afford it, or that's just how you're feeling, you want to say you want to give your album away. You can do that and have the option for people to pay anything. And then, yes, otherwise you could say, no, 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 the album's $5, but if you want to give me some more, you could do that. Or you could be firm and say, hey, the album is this. End of story. Don't pay me any more. Okay, great. So I'm going to upload my Dark Ambient ASMR banjo album. I'm going to press it to vinyl, and it's going to come with a Russian burner phone. So, yeah, I think it's going to do really well, actually. I think submit it it to the Bandcamp daily, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, it's already drafted the email. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Uh, Andrew and Ali, thank you very, very much for coming mm-hmm. to Crack Support this week. Hey, thanks for having us. Yes, thanks very much. Crack Audio.